Thank you, Laramie, and the worship team for leading us this morning. This morning we'll be in Psalm 56. As we continue our summer series through the Psalms, it's such a delight to study these different Psalms and even get some of the context for this. It was such an encouragement last week to hear um, Brother Huey Moog preach and did such a wonderful job at looking at Psalm 55 and even the context for that was so helpful. And so thank you so much for that, brother, and preaching the word so faithfully last week. And as we dive into Psalm 56 this morning, I titled this message, Trust in the Lord, Fear No Man. Trust in the Lord, Fear No Man. It opens up right at the very beginning of Psalm 56. And it says, To the choir master, according to the dove on far-off terebinths, a mictum of David, when the Philistines seized him in Gath. Now, most psalms have a bit of a subscription or superscription right beforehand uh, that describes a psalm. Not all of them give the background of it, but this one does. It tells us when the Philistines had seized David at Gath, but we don't often see these things like according to the dove on far-off terebinths. Now, what could that mean? This was likely the name of the song or the melody that the psalm was sung to. Uh, Some have even translated that phrase to be uh, this, uh, set to the silent dove of distant land. So it's a setting that the psalm would be sung in. And a mictum, what is a mictum? A mictum, it's a type of psalm that refers to something inscribed in a meaningful way. And so it brings out the meaning. We see very clearly there, it's when the Philistines seized him in Gath. Now, this context goes back to 1 Samuel, so if you want to turn there, you can. I'll be reading from 1 Samuel, but keep your hand or your worship guide right there in Psalm 56. But 1 Samuel chapter 21, verse 10 to 15, very briefly in just six verses, looks at this moment in David's life. Also, uh, Psalm 34, at the same time, which Brother Laramie opened up with Psalm 34, shows us the same story. So it's two Psalms actually talking about the same incident. But look at 1 Samuel chapter 21, 10 to 15. And David rose and fled that day from Saul and went to Achish, the king of Gath. And the servants of Achish said to him, is not this David the king of the land? Did they not sing to one another of him in dances. Saul has struck down his thousands and David his ten thousands. And David took these words to heart and was much afraid of Achish, the king of Gath. So he changed his behavior before them and pretended to be insane in their hands and made marks on the doors of the gate and let his spittle run down his beard. Then Achish said to his servants, Behold, you see the man is mad. Why then have you brought him to me? Do I lack madmen that you have brought this fellow to behave as a madman in my presence? Shall this fellow come into my house? David was afraid. He took the words to heart that they had said of him being reminded of, yes, his victory over Goliath, but also if they saw him in that way, they might deem him as a threat, and they might think, we need to take David out. So he was afraid, and you might say he pleaded insanity. (laughs) He went crazy before them, 
He, he went so crazy to us to let spit just run down his beard. And back then, you took care, well, good care of your beard. I mean, people do it today as well. But back then, it was a sign of you, you're taking good care of yourself. You're taking care of your beard. It's a, a thing of honor, of manhood. And so he's making his manhood look, you might say, um, shameful, disgusting. He's looking insane. See, David was constantly on the run from Saul. For 14 years of his life, he ran from Saul. That's how 1 Samuel 21.10 opens. He rose that day and fled from Saul. And when he had nowhere else to go, he goes to the land of his enemies, and they seize him. They seize him. Now David has slain Goliath, and Israel saw David as such a great warrior that they even made those songs about him, greater than the king, greater than Saul. This clearly filled Saul with jealousy. And he sought to pursue David and kill him. So being on the run for so long, for 14 years, David was often put in very vulnerable positions. So immediately after this situation in Gath, for instance, in 1 Samuel 22, he flees to the cave at Adullam. And notice the kind of people who come around him. This will tell you a little bit about his circumstance. Who are the people? 1 Samuel 22, 2. And everyone who was in distress, and everyone who was in debt, and everyone who was bitter in soul gathered to him. And he became commander over them. You see, this context helps us to see the state that we find David in as he pens this psalm. He is clearly at a very low point in his life, and even the lowest of the low are the ones gathering around him, therefore emphasizing how low he actually is. So this helps us to see that this psalm is a psalm of lament. This psalm is a psalm of lament, which is really interesting when you think about it. Because this psalm and Psalm 34 both speak to the same situation. And Psalm 34 is a psalm of praise. It praises God so often in that psalm versus here in Psalm 56. Now, God is going to be praised in Psalm 56, but it seems that he's doing it in a way that is lamenting his situation, but also praising God at the same time. Now, I believe the main idea of this passage could be summarized like this. No matter what man does to attack us, we can praise God because he can be trusted in the midst of our suffering. No matter what man does to attack us, to assail us, we can praise God because he can be trusted in the midst of our suffering. In times of lament, we often find ourselves at some of the lowest points of life. That's where David is here. We might be longing for better times or brighter days. And during this time, we have one of two options. We can fear God, or we can fear everything else. We can fear God, we can fear everything else. What is our response going to be? We can let anxieties cripple us. The pressure of the situation drive us. We could let the depression that can set on from that dissolve us. We could let fear grip us. But none of those are the right response in the midst of our suffering. This text demonstrates what the right response is, and that is the fear of the Lord, to trust in the Lord and his word. And as we look at the first stanza of this psalm, this psalm is broken up in two parts, verses 1 to 7, and then verses 8 to 13. And as we move on, I homiletically, or as a sermon, broke it down into five. And I want to I show you this as we move forward. So in this first stanza, verse one and two, we see his plea for grace. 
David's plea for grace, his plea for grace. Look in verse one, he says, be gracious to me, O God, for man tramples on me. All day long an attacker oppresses me. My enemies trample on me all day long, for many attack me proudly. David is making a plea to God that God would be gracious. In his lament for God's grace, he understands it is a kindness from God that he doesn't deserve, that he's asking for. He recognizes he might even deserve what he's going through, or might even deserve worse because he's a sinner. But he asks for God's grace, he asks for God's mercy. And it is a gift of mercy in the time where the wrath of his attackers is being poured out. He's asking for mercy. Notice twice in verse one and two, we see this repetition all day long. It's incessant. It doesn't stop. The suffering brought on by others on him is constant. And notice how they attack. Verse two says, for many attack me proudly. They're prideful. They're arrogant. And David is God's anointed. He had just been anointed king. And they're attacking God's anointed. If you're opposing God's anointed in this sense, and this is the David the king, you are opposing God. And that's what's happening here. These people were proud, exalting themselves against God. It is in God's character that he'd be gracious to us. It's in God's character that he be kind to us. We can think of so many Psalms that might even come to mind. Psalm 145 is one of my favorites. That God is gracious and merciful. He's slow to anger. He's abounding in steadfast love. The Psalms over and over again repeat this refrain of who God is and how great he is. And here, David is not wrong to come to God in supplication, making a plea for God's intervention, recognizing what a great undeserved kindness that would be. He also knows this, God is the only one who can save him. God is the only one who can stop what is happening to him. Now notice how much in these first two verses we see on David's attackers, there's so much emphasis here. Fearing God doesn't mean we ignore those who instill fear around us. We must be wise as serpents and as innocent as doves as scripture talks about. But rather, the fear of man versus the fear of God is about making sure you do not fear people more than you fear God. It doesn't mean you close your eyes and you close your ears and you ignore everything happening around you, but rather you process what's happening around you through the lens of fearing God first and not them, not man. We must fear God first. And often today, modern psychologists will give you a label if you're fearing man. And this label can often be maybe social anxiety when you struggle with the approval or disapproval of people. And notice this, the modern psychotherapy movement is going to make make it a disease model. You have this, you are plagued with this rather than you do this. And with this type of issue, it's, it's very difficult because there's some fundamental assumptions of psychotherapy, for example, that God doesn't exist and that man is just a physical being. But I think as Christians, we should look both horizontally and vertically. Horizontally, we need to look at that person, those attackers in David's case, and we need to see, okay, is this someone we need to gain their approval or disapproval? Well, no, right? We don't need to function that way. 
But that's often what's before us, this choice. But we also need to look vertically at the God who has created us and created them and placed us in these circumstances where we find ourselves. And when we do this, we are living in the reality that God made, when we live both horizontally and vertically. But we wanna look to God first. He has a role in our present lives, and if we respond to him rightly, in our circumstances, we'll respond to everything else rightly as we move forward. So in David's plea for God's grace, and his acknowledgement of the vertical, starting with this psalm, he starts with God first, not with his attackers. Be gracious to me, O God. He looks at the horizontal problem through his vertical relationship, which leads to his praise to God. Look in verse three, his praise to God. When I am afraid, I put my trust in you, in God, whose word I praise. In God, I trust, I shall not be afraid. What can flesh do to me? Notice he opens up saying, when I'm afraid, not if I'm afraid. So David is afraid. The text says he was afraid. And I think that's even key to see this. That even though he was afraid in this moment, he goes to God. He doesn't emphasize his attackers. He emphasizes the almighty God. In God, I trust. Notice that repetition. In God, in God. God is his emphasis. God is his focus. And notice here, that's even evident of the structure of verse three and four. Notice how it starts. When I am afraid, we see the word afraid, okay? You see the word afraid? And then he goes, I put my trust in you. And notice the word trust and afraid is mentioned again. But in the middle between that, you see what? In God, whose word I praise. So that's the very middle of this chiasm here. In God, I trust, I shall not be afraid. So it begins and ends with being afraid. And then the next step, trust, but in the very middle. What's in the very middle? God. God is the focus. God is the center. When, he, when he's afraid, and that's gonna happen, we all get afraid. David got afraid, and that's okay. But how do you respond? I put my trust in you. And notice, it's not just in God, which that's, that's fine and good enough, but notice his emphasis. In God whose word I praise. In God whose word I praise. You see, God speaks to us through the word. He doesn't speak to us outside the word. He doesn't write a sign in the cloud saying, hey, you can, keep, you can make it, keep going. You don't open up a fortune cookie and it's like, oh, you know what, things maybe might get better for me because <laughs> it's fortune cookie. No, that's not how God speaks to us. He has spoken by his authoritative and inerrant and sufficient word that we can face any fear in our life. And we look at this text and that's what it's trying to bring us to, but not just to say, all right, God, thank you for your word but to praise God for his word, that we might respond with rejoicing and thanksgiving. That is the, what it means to praise God, to praise him in the midst of our fears. Now we understand it is an easier thing said than done, but we know it is the right thing to do and the best thing for us to do. And notice the results. How does David respond as he thinks through all this? He says, what can flesh do to me? Wait a second, he's being attacked. People are twisting his words. People are coming after him. He's being pursued. He could have been killed in Gath. Saul's trying to take his life. But then he asks the question, but what can flesh do to me? Is David contradicting himself? No, I don't think so. Yes, these people can do something to him, but not without God allowing it to happen. Remember the story of Job? 
And Satan goes before God. And then God says, have you considered my servant Job? He says, well, he'll never curse you because you've given him so much. He's like, all right, take everything away except for his life. And he still praises God. He says, blessed be the name of the Lord. God gives and he takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. So we look at this. We think, what can flesh do to me? I think it's great for David to have this response because you know what he's doing? He's placing man in his right place in God and recognizing and acknowledging God in his place. And that's what we should do as well. But notice he goes on. Actually, before he goes on, I wanted to share one more thing. I think of the story of uh, Polycarp. You guys know who Polycarp is? He's one of the disciples of John the Apostle. And I love his response when he's being martyred. Now, some of these martyrdom stories, um, they're a little embellished, but you can read some of them in like Fox's books of martyrs, for instance. And he was a bishop of Smyrna, and he was about to be burned at the stake. And when they went to tie, tie him up, he said they didn't have to, that he would just stand there. They gave him one last chance to recant his faith in Christ alone by offering incense to Caesar and to say that Caesar is Lord. The proconsul asked him first whether he was Polycarp, and on hearing that he was, he tried to persuade him to apostatize, saying, have respect for your old age, swear by the fortune of Caesar, repent and say, down with the atheists. Now, Christians were viewed as atheists because they denied Caesar as God, so they called, him, they called Christians atheists, which is kind of funny looking back on it, but that's how they viewed him. Now, Polycarp looked grimly at the wicked heathen multitude in the stadium, and gesturing toward them, he said, down with the atheists. Swear, urged the proconsul, reproach Christ or disgrace Christ, and I will set you free. Polycarp sat there and he said, 86 years I have served him, and he has done me no wrong. How can I blaspheme my king and my savior? And he was burned at the stake. He understood who God was. He could not blaspheme or go against the God who had saved him. No matter what peril lie before him, no matter what flesh did to him that day, he knew that they could not touch his soul. They knew that, he knew, sorry, that they could not do anything apart from the will of God. And so we knew in that moment, he knew in that moment what was coming, and that was for him to enter into glory. The saints of God all throughout the Old and New Testament and throughout the church age have faced horrible persecution and death, but it was all worth it to follow Christ. We trust in his word and we praise his word just like them, and we hope to model their lives in our own lives. But things might get even worse in our praise of God. Worse, that is, in the worldly sense. But Jesus said this. He said, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. You see, there is a true joy to be had in suffering for the name of Christ. Christ says you're blessed. You're in a state of happiness, a a happy state of being, joyful, in suffering for the name of Christ. You see, David suffers here. And the second stanza, verses 5 to 7 here, clearly shows what these persecutors are doing in detail. As David details, look down at your text in verse 5, we see his peril before God. Verse 5, all day long, they injure me without, injure, injure my cause. All their thoughts are against me for evil. 
They stir up strife. They lurk. They watch my steps as they have waited for my life. For their crime will they escape? In wrath cast down the peoples, O God. David had no rest from their constant chase. Notice the psalm says again, it was all day long. The third time in this text. He's weary. The ESV puts it like this, which is what I'm preaching from. They injure my cause. But I also think a better translation might be given some of the context here. Is that they, he, it says that they would twist my words. They would twist my words. You see, these persecutors had thoughts. Thoughts that had no even little bit of goodwill toward David. They wanted to crush him. They wanted to pursue him. They wanted to end him. And notice how they're described. There's three, three verbs here. They stir up strife. Stirring up strife. Constantly going after David. They lurk. They're sneaking around. They're finding ways to get at him. And notice they're so close that they, they even watch his steps. Some of us count steps with a Fitbit or an Apple watch. We watch our own steps. But think, imagine if someone was following you around all day and they knew how many steps you took. They counted each one. That's kind of what David's trying to communicate here. I am being so closely watched by my attackers. They're after me. They're coming after me. And these, have, these all, by the way, have the ultimate purpose of making sure that they take advantage of any harm that they can act out on David. They watch him very closely. They want to destroy him. And as the text says, he goes on to say, as they have waited for my life. Oh, they're just waiting. They're waiting to pounce. They're waiting to end it. They're waiting to destroy. So David sees us for what it is. It's criminal. It's evil. So David asks this question. For their crime, will they escape? Maybe someone has committed a crime against you and you felt they escaped and they got away with it. Well, David asks this question of God. And you know what he prays? He prays an imprecatory prayer here. In wrath, cast down the peoples, O God. Now, he's not saying all people. He's talking about the people that are coming after him. It's okay to pray for God's wrath because that's the point here of, of, of civil government, right? To reward those who do good and punish those who do evil. So we might look in, in the sense of suffering, we might have faced a crime, maybe even committed against us, and think, God, in your wrath, cast them down, judge them. Well, that's exactly what David does here, and it's a righteous thing for him to do. In coming to the God of grace, he's also the God of wrath. This is very similar of things he said in the previous psalm. If you just look right over in Psalm 55, look at what he says in verse 15. Let death steal over them. Let them go down to Sheol alive. For evil is in their dwelling, in pl- dwelling place and in their heart. Look at verse 23, very similar of chapter 55. But you, O God, will cast them down into the pit of destruction. Men of blood and treachery cannot live out half their days, but I will trust in you. An important point of focus here is how those who are enemies of God will twist your words. But even if they do, you must trust in God's word because God keeps his word. God will judge them. God will care for you. What matters ultimately is that you are faithful to him. 
One time while I was working at El Phoenix Mexican Restaurant in Fort Worth, Texas, I was a young college student and I was trying to evangelize my coworkers. And one gentleman who's in his early 50s um, loved to talk. He was very opinionated, and, uh, but he was, he was also a drunkard. So sometimes he'd come to work drunk. And um, he would talk to me, though. And we, I would try to share the gospel with him. I saw him in his plight. I saw him in his suffering and even his own sin. And I had a lot of compassion for the man. He was very arrogant, very prideful. I tried being patient many days, many weeks. Would even try to make sure I sat, had my lunch with him so we could talk. And I remember one time, as I began to try to reason with him from the scriptures, he would twist my words. I get a little frustrated. He would not only twist my words, but he would also twist God's word. He'd make it say things that it didn't say. He even went so far as to say that Jesus was not God, that he was just a man. And to be honest, it began to really annoy me. His taunts, his twisting of my words, of God's word, began to get under my skin. It became, it slowly went from my compassion for him to evangelize him, to actually wanting to win an argument. And wanting to win an argument with him, I got mad one day. I felt so bad. I got mad. I'm like, dude, you keep twisting my words. Stop it. Come on. You're annoying me. I walked away and immediately felt convicted. I went in my car that night and I wept. I felt so awful that I was, when I was trying to share the gospel with him, what I've been trying to do for days and weeks, I felt like I'd ruined it in a moment. The next day I went into work and I went right away to apologize to him. I owned up for what I did wrong and how I acted. And uh, <laughs> he used it to twist my words. <laughs> and uh, I was like, well, well, brother, hope you forgive me and hope we can, I didn't call him brother. I said brother because I'm talking to you guys. Um, I said, well, friend, I hope you'll forgive me, and I hope we can continue having these conversations, and I hope you'll one day trust in Christ. Never happened, but I think it was still a good moment to humble myself before him, but also to learn to how to handle, when people twist your words, how should you respond? It's going to happen. It's going to happen. People in your own family, people at your job, people at your school, people are going to twist your words. But God does not call you to be fruitful. He calls you to be faithful. We're called to be an example and a witness. And in being faithful, we've got to go to the God in whose word we praise. We've got to go to the God whom we trust. We've got to go to the God who, who allows us to not be afraid. We must trust him fully. No matter what man does to attack us, even by twisting our words, we can praise God, because he can be trusted in the midst of our suffering. So we continue on to verse 8, and we see his praise in God's word again. Verse 8, you have kept count of my tossings. You put my tears in your bottle. Are they not in your book? Then my enemies will turn back in the day when I call. This I know, that God is for me. In God whose word I praise, in the Lord whose word I praise, in God I trust I shall not be afraid. What can man do to me? See, David recognizes that God is totally, completely aware of every bit of his sufferings. His tears, as it were, are collected in God's bottle or wineskin. And as they're collected there, it's each one that God has been aware of. We see this and we, we, we find comfort. 
Because this is how God functions in his grace and mercy toward us. He cares very, very much so for each one of us. And as we look at this, we might often look at someone and and see they're in a sad disposition or even see them crying. But even this imagery of collecting someone's tears is that you don't take your eyes off of them. This God isn't the God who made us and left us. He's the God who made us. As believers, he's with us. If he is collecting our tears, he knows each one of them when no one else is looking. He knows each one of them in the midst of our suffering when we're all alone, yet we're not alone. Because God is with us. He watches over us. And knowing God is with him, David is confident. Notice he says, then my enemies will turn back in the day when I call. This I know. He knows something about God. God is for him. It reminds me of Romans chapter eight, when he says, if God is for us, it asks a rhetorical question, who can be against us? Who? Paul's like saying, come on, answer me. Nobody. He goes on in Romans 8, it is God who justifies, he declares you righteous, who is to condemn? Satan? No. He's not greater than God. Your attackers? No. Yourself? No. No word of man or angel can supersede or be greater than the word of God, what God has said. God's word is to be trusted. One of my favorite passages in the Bible is in the book of Joshua. I preached through Joshua back in uh, 2018 and 19 to our students. And there's many chapters in the book of Joshua about God distributing the land. Now for us, we read that because that took place probably 3,500 to 4,000 years ago. And we read that and we might yawn like, okay, I have no idea how to pronounce half the names and half the places. To me, it doesn't mean so much. Or in, in part of that's because maybe we don't understand the background. When we, when we follow up from Genesis to Deuteronomy, we see the, the life of the people of God develop and who they are and the promises God made. Those promises were being fulfilled in the distribution of the land. And why, why am I bringing that up? Why is that a point of importance here? Well, if you look at Joshua chapter 21, 44 to 45, this is what is said. Thus says the Lord, or thus the Lord gave to Israel all the land, listen here, that he swore to give to their fathers. He kept his promise. He gave them all the land. He kept his promise. And they took possession of it, and they settled there. And the Lord gave them rest on every side, just as he had sworn to their fathers. Not one, listen here, not one of all their enemies had withstood them. For the Lord had given all their enemies into their hands. And this is where I believe, this is the verse that might summarize the entire book of Joshua, but also apply to this point I'm trying to make. Verse 45, not one word of all the good promises that the Lord had made to the house of Israel had failed. All came to pass. God's word will never fail. It will never fail. And we see this in the, in the life of the people of God, and David knows that story. This, that happened before David. He knows he's living in that land that God swore. 
He's fleeing from Saul and from the Philistines in that land. He's fleeing, walking on the very ground God had promised. He knows God's word. He's walking on the promises of it, fleeing. God's word will never fail. Psalm 119 reflects this in a number of ways. And 119 verse 28, my soul melts away for sorrow. Strengthen me according to your word. I'm severely afflicted. Give me life, O Lord, according to your word. You are my hiding place in my field. I hope in your word. I rise before dawn and cry for help. I hope in your words. Princes persecute me without cause, but my heart stands in awe of your words. Beloved, is that your response to the word of God in the midst of your suffering? That you stand in awe of God's word? Does God's word grip you when life is hard? That's how David responded when he had sorrow and affliction and he was hiding and he was running and he was being persecuted. He wanted strength, life, protection, hope, and awe, all in in and of the word of God. So as we think about the word of God and we think about David's suffering, It's also a good time for us to reflect on how God has faithfully cared for his people. Many have suffered, and many have been comforted in their suffering. 2 Corinthians talks about God being the God of mercy and the God of all comfort, who comforts his people. And notice, we've seen how meticulous God's sovereign care is for David. He counts the tears. He collects them, he stores them, and they're written in his book. God knows very intimately every single minute moment of David's suffering. And in our day and age, the response often to suffering is, is this, where are you, God? Where were you when the flood happened? Where were you when my parents divorced? Where were you when my friend died, God? Where, where was God when I lost my job? Where was God when my marriage faced such great turmoil? Where was God when my child rebelled? Where was God when the doctor told me I had cancer? Where was God when? And you fill in the blank. That is often our sinful and fleshly response. Notice David didn't respond that way. 14 years is a long time to be running and hiding in caves. We can barely do without AC in our home sometimes. He's running and hiding in the caves of Israel. You know where God was in the midst of your suffering? If you're a believer in Christ, he was right there. You have the Holy Spirit of God within you if you're a believer. You've been sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. So God is right there in the midst of your suffering. God keeps his promises. God will never fail you. And God's word, over and over again, recounts these realities to us in our sufferings that we may endure with joy. So the hope of God's deliverance, it enables us to work and labor for him. And David here demonstrates this. Notice, by his performance to God. Look at the very end of the psalm, verse 12 and 13. I must perform my vows to you, O God. I will render thank offerings to you. For you have delivered my soul from death, yes, my feet from falling, that I may walk before God in the light of life. God is, or sorry, David is anticipating God's deliverance. It hasn't happened yet, but how does he 
praise God in anticipation of what God is going to do. He knows he's God's anointed. He knows he's going to be king. He doesn't know how it's going to happen yet in the midst of his suffering. But he knows God is going to bring about his deliverance. And a good way for us to think about this is we are already victorious in Christ. Yet, yes, the war isn't over yet in the sense of there's still flesh that we're battling with. There's still the devil that's our adversary. There's still the world system that we live in that's, that hasn't been fully taken over by Christ yet because we still see the world system at work. Be at Christ as King of kings and Lord of lords, and one day he's coming and will be under his feet. So how do we as the people of God respond rightly to present circumstances as we wait for future perfect circumstances? We do this in everything we do. We perform our vows to God. We, we keep our word to say, Christ, you died for me. I'm going to live for you. We give our all to Christ. We live for him. We do this because of the gospel. And what is the gospel? God, man, Christ response. Easy way to summarize it. God is holy. We're not. We are unholy. Our best to God is as filthy rags. Man's condition is desperate. There is no solution for our sin and for the penalty of our sin apart from what God offers in Christ. Christ is that solution. Jesus, being fully God and fully man, was able to sympathize with us in our weakness, be tempted as we are, yet without sin. And because he could do that, he was, he was fully God and fully man. He demonstrated that on the cross. Dying is our substitute. Dying in our place. But then rising again from the grave. And that is the gospel. But we must respond rightly to it. If you're an unbeliever in this room, you can't take, you can't say, well, I'm going I'm to do good. I'm going to work hard and do good. I'm going to win God's approval. You can't, you can't do that. God looks at you as sinner and he condemns you in your sin. But listen, the law condemns. But Christ became the curse of the law for you that you might receive eternal life, that you might accept his free gift of salvation. So he, yes, with the law says, no, you're judged. You're going to be judged if you don't repent. But in offering repentance, he says, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Are you burdened by your sin this morning? Are you burdened by the fact that if you knew you died today, you'd be separated from God forever? John 3, 16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, so that whosoever who believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world. That he already sent the law. The law already condemned. But he sent his Son into the world not to condemn the world, but to save it. Will you accept his son? Will you look to the son of God and live and trust in him? And then from that, from repentance and faith, trusting in Christ alone, relying on him and his good work at the cross alone, from that you become a believer. And from that you can do like David and perform these vows to God and, and, and offer thanks and praise to him. You can praise in his word and live for him. You see, we perform our vows to God not for salvation, but from it. 
We live for God from it. We thank God. We honor Him. So I would think a way that this text might apply to us today in a statement would be that God offers grace in Christ to overcome the world through the means of His Word to transform us and sustain us. God offers grace in Christ to overcome the world through the means of his word to transform and sustain us. That we might move forward, that we might take that next step and continue in our faith. It's a process. That transformation is a process. And we need his sustaining grace every moment. We need him to keep collecting our tears in his bottle, to record them in his book. So in our lament, how do we approach God's word? Maybe you're lamenting over your own sin. How do you approach God's word? Maybe you're lamenting from some circumstances that are causing great burden and suffering on your life. How do you approach God's word? Does it collect dust on the shelf or does your Bible app never get opened? Do you turn to other things to deal with your suffering? You turn to drugs or alcohol or games or toys or trinkets, stuff work, relationships, what do you turn to in the midst of your suffering? If you don't approach God's word, you're not going to be found to be someone who's praising God's word, but rather you might be complaining about God. God, why this and why that? That might be your response. Well, let me ask you this question. If you're not looking at God's word, whatever you're looking at, is it working for you? I can tell you it's not from experience. I know before I came to believer in, became a believer in Christ, I looked to the things of the world and it didn't satisfy. It was destroying me. And maybe that's you today. But maybe if you're a believer in Christ, you've begun to stray off the straight and narrow and gone off into the ditch. You might think, man, God doesn't want anything to do with me. No, he does. He bought you. You know what he wants you to do? What Proverbs says, Proverbs says the righteous man falls seven times, but he gets back up again. We still make mistakes as Christians. We still sin as Christians. We do sins of omission. We do sins of commission. We still sin. But what are you looking at? Are you looking at the word? Are you looking at the things that are seen? Your own sin, your trials, or even your, your enemies? What are you looking at? 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 16 to 18 says this. So we do not lose heart, though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look, as we look, not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are are eternal. What are you looking at today? The seen or the unseen? You know what David saw? He saw Achish. He was afraid. He saw Saul. and He was afraid. He didn't close his eyes to the fearful things in front of him, but he responded to the fearful things in front of him by going to the God who could carry him through it. As you look to the things in front of you, the things that you do see, are you turning your eyes to he who is unseen? Yes, we can't see God right now, but that's part of God's plan right now. And that's a good thing. 
You know what we have? The all-sufficient word of God. Are you in God's word? Are you letting it be a comfort to you today? Are you letting it encourage you in the midst of your trial? Or, let me put it this way. Do you know people who are suffering? People within this body. Are you going to them to encourage them? Are you going to them and bringing God's word to them? Let me encourage you. If there's someone that even comes to your, to your mind, I want to encourage you to do that today. May we respond to God's word praising his word. May we respond to God's word with trust and faith, even when we're afraid. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I pray that this morning we'd respond rightly to the text of scripture. You're a gracious God, a merciful God. And the suffering is prevalent in our day because we live in a Genesis 3 world, a world plagued by the fall, a world that is currently under the sway of the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that's now at work, and the sons of disobedience. A world system that's set against you, even, even naturally, the natural disasters we see, this is a world that's in chaos. But Lord, even sinful man, lost man, opposes you at every turn. Your word says that you oppose the proud, but you give grace to the humble. And us as believers today, in this room, we pray that we would respond with humility to your word. That if we have not been trusting you and praising you in your word in the midst of our suffering, that we would repent and do that today. So we not, may not move forward in despair Because that is not the place of the Christian to be in despair. Your word does say, blessed are those who mourn for they shall be comforted. But in our, in our mourning, we go to the God who's our comforter. We go to his word, which gives us life. Help us to do that. Help me to do that. Trials will come. But we understand no matter what may come our way, it is well with our soul. Because Lord, you purchased us. You died for us. You rose again to give us life. Thank you, Jesus, for that life. We praise your name because you're a God who saves. You're so good to us. This morning, if you are not a believer in Christ and you've listened to this sermon, you've heard the gospel, I pray that you would respond rightly to God's word. That you might know what it is to have your sins paid for. To have a right relationship with the God who made you. And that you might live your life with joy for him. If that's you today, You'll have an opportunity to respond in just a moment. We're all, I'll be down front. You can come forward, and I'd be glad to speak with you about how you might begin a relationship with God and be in right relationship with him through his son. But also, we have many people in this room, many members here at Woodlawn Baptist Church who would be glad if you just turn to them and say, 
look, I, I, don't, I don't know Christ. I want to know him. Will you help me? They'd be so delighted to share with you how you could begin a personal relationship with Christ. Maybe today, this talk on suffering brought to, your, to some of y'all's mind the suffering you're currently facing or that you have faced or that you're worried about facing in the future. If you need prayer for anything, I'll be down front, be glad to receive you, to be able to pray with you. But also if you're seeking to join this body of believers in membership, this is also a time where you could come forward to let us know that you desire to join Woodlong. We would begin that membership process to get to know you as you seek to join Woodlawn. If that's your desire today, we look forward to greeting you. Lord Jesus, we love you. We thank you for this time. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.